only do we need to think of those three things, but we also need to think about how to move towards supporting each and every child in ways that are playful, are fun-loving, are, are just that make learning delightful. But the, the emphasis in the new position statement on playful, engaged learning is stronger than it's ever been. It's just beautifully, beautifully written. Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Village, a podcast from the Wyoming Early Childhood Professional Learning Collaborative. We know that it takes a village to raise a child, and Wyoming Early Childhood Educators, you are an essential part of that village. We created this podcast to share the wisdom from national experts and the wisdom from your Wyoming colleagues as we discuss important topics in our field. I'm your host, Nikki Baldwin, and it's great to be back with season three of Voices from the Village, I'm thrilled to introduce our first guest of the season, Camille Catlett. Camille is a senior technical assistance specialist at the UNC Frank Program Child Development Institute. They're a big deal if you don't know about them. I just have to throw that in for everybody. Um, in her years in early childhood, I love Camille's story because she started working in public schools as a speech language pathologist. Um, she's also worked in government, higher education settings and directed multiple federal US Department of Education grants. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited to talk to Camille about is that she has led and continues to lead efforts to improve the experiences of children and families of diverse cultures, languages, abilities, and life circumstances. Um, I've been so lucky to get to know Camille better uh, this fall as she's joined with the leadership from NAUIC, which is the National Association for the Education of Young Children, to engage with higher education faculty in Wyoming on a project um, as part of the federal preschool development grant work that we've been doing in the state. One of the things that I've noticed about Camille that I appreciate most is her energy as I've never met a person who can go as long and as hard as Camille with so much enthusiasm for this work. And I just, um, and, her, and her wisdom is something that I can't wait to share with you today. Uh, when I asked Camille to join me, I told her that we could talk about anything. I think we could talk about anything and I could just listen to Camille for hours. Um, but we are gonna focus our um, conversation today around the new NAEYC Developmentally Appropriate Practice Position Statement. It's been around for a little while now, um, but there's a brand new book that's coming out Right now, it was just released in the last couple of weeks. Um, Camille has had a part in some of that and just her experience in the field related to developmentally appropriate practice. I thought it would be great if we could share that with all of you listeners. So I just wanna welcome you, Camille. Welcome to Voices from the Village. Thank you, it's great to be in Wyoming. Um, to get us started, would you just take a little time and tell us how you got here? Your story started as a speech language pathologist and then you transitioned now to all of this work that you've done nationally um, and the work that you're doing with college faculty across the country. Um, back then as a speech language pathologist, would you have ever imagined you would have done all the things you've done in your career here? So I just, just tell us a little bit about how you ended up here. Um, I, I, I suspect that the path though circuitous makes sense to me, but only because I know how the dots connect. So I, as you were saying, started and completed my graduate work in the Washington DC area worked for a major public school system and then was recruited into federal service where I worked for the administration on developmental disabilities and the whole field of developmental disabilities and how uh, the concept of interdisciplinary practice was put forward in legislation just really appealed to me. It was part of my preparation and something I really became invested in. 
that just coincidentally, along with some major new pieces of federal legislation, led me to work for the American Speech Language Hearing Association. And at ASHA, which is the acronym for that organization, I led one of the very first federal grants to support the implementation of what was then the new Part H legislation. So historically in states, for families whose children had identified disabilities, they largely experienced a medical model. And at that very significant point in time, states needed to do some serious thinking about what lead agency would orchestrate the services for young children. And also how might they possibly make the shift to a brand new concept of family-centered practice. And I had the pleasure of working with teams from many states to really bring together faculty members and family members and state leaders to think about and organize approaches to do that. So I think it's just a matter of being at the right place, right time, and that's how it started. That's amazing. Um, that happened also to lead to the next transition, which is I was working largely with teams from states who were involved in ongoing professional development, one very talented individual from the state of Wisconsin pointed out that while we were paying lots and lots of attention to retraining individuals from a medical model to more team-based approaches and family-centered approaches, one of the things he kept mentioning is that there is no amount of ongoing professional development that can compensate for pre-service preparation that is not stellar. And so that just was really intriguing to me, the whole idea of how might there be more attention in the work we do to what happens as part of the preparation of personnel, whether it is at the CDA level, the associate's degree level. And so that's how I ended up where I am now, working mostly with colleges and universities in conjunction with transforming and enhancing their work to make sure their students are well prepared to support each family, every family and their children. Uh-huh. And that's uh, that's how we came to meet each other is because you're yes. doing that work uh, with us in Wyoming right now. And just listeners, this is something that has been really exciting development from the, the federal preschool development grant funds that we've received is that um, at the University of Wyoming, uh, we've been convening a group of higher education faculty from community colleges across the state and University of Wyoming faculty. And Camille has been guiding us through this really amazing process of looking closely at our current courses that we're teaching, thinking about how we can improve them and align them to the NAEYC professional preparation standards and competencies, um, and finding ways so that the work we're asking students to do is really meaningful and connects them um, to the kind of practices we want to see them doing in the field. So um, it's been a gift. And um, I've been learning a ton myself from Camille and in the classes that I'm teaching at the University of Wyoming as well. Um, yeah. Nikki, that's actually a you know, major chunk of, of my journey as well, because in North Carolina, where we have a very significant number of historically Black colleges and universities, very significant number of tribes, and a, a growing population of individuals for whom English is not the language of their home. About 12 years ago, we looked around at the universities that were preparing teachers. What we saw was that they largely were using a model that supported just children who were average and children who 
did not have particular characteristics like the new North Carolinians. So um, mm -hmm. a model was developed with some really talented people I had the privilege of working with called the Blueprint Model. And we worked with universities to look at ways to change the coursework, the field experiences and the program practices to more explicitly reflect emphasis on the children and families who the graduates would be serving. Mm -hmm. And the result was, was favorable. We were able to document significant changes in what the courses addressed and how they addressed that. We saw a significant change in the number of field experiences in which students were actually interacting with children who spoke other languages and um, looked different than they did. And ultimately that led to that model being replicated in a number of states, thanks to some really thoughtfully targeted US Department of Education grants. That's amazing. Um... That's exciting uh, in my own experience as a faculty member. And, and I think you and I have talked about this before, um, <clears throat> that early childhood faculty tend to, at universities and community colleges, um, uh, be forgotten, can be forgotten. <laughs> early childhood in general um, can be that way. And early childhood faculty often lack resources. They're often tasked with a really heavy course load and um, so much work to do and few resources. And uh, that's one of the things that's been so great about bringing you here to Wyoming is to try to get additional resources and support to the early childhood faculty at our community colleges. So yeah. when you think about the role that faculty play in preparing future professionals to support children and families, it's completely surprising to me that in most states, there is no um, professional development system for those individuals that largely faculty members are on their own for attending conferences. Some of them have support to do that, others don't. And as a result, we see changes that are desired but not necessarily implemented because there isn't a support structure for doing that. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, and I think there are, are multiple um, I guess, contributing factors. One that continues to shock me is I will work in a state where the state agency leaders develop a new um, IFSP plan, for example, and want all of the teachers to really be using this new IFSP to develop plans for young children with disabilities. And they develop a set of PowerPoints to tell everyone how to use this new plan. And the most logical thing to me is why would you not send that new plan and those PowerPoints to faculty members so they can immediately incorporate that into their work? But it's it's a supply chain, and I think that's that's such a commonly used term right now. Uh -huh. It's a supply chain that has not really been built in most states. Yeah, I agree. Camille, uh, I this is something that you and I haven't talked about before, but I would love to know your thoughts about this. How do you see the connection between this higher ed piece that you've done so much work with and um, the workforce and a pathway to higher education? So moving from professional learning and um, providing opportunities for anyone in the workforce who wants to uh, continue their education to be able to connect uh, at the university, at community college or university level. I'm, I'm certain that in your years doing this work, you've seen systems that work well, systems that don't. Is there any wisdom you have for us in Wyoming as we're just embarking on that uh, conversation right now about how we can get things right as mm -hmm. we try to create that system? I think there's been a lot of 
significant change in that area in the last five or six years. And I think the, the Power to the Profession initiative that was orchestrated by NAEYC, but in concert with national partners, really was a large part of thinking about that and thinking about how it is that the idea of a professional development system where once the priorities for what it's important to know and be able to do are selected, there are opportunities to build them across an entire lifespan of working in the field. And let me just mention before I forget, I will be possibly mentioning a number of resources today. And one of the things I want to provide after I I'm taking notes about what I've mentioned, but there will be a handout that goes with this podcast. So Great. for example, I just mentioned Power to the Professional and I would like anyone who's interested in learning more about that to be able to take a look. That's the great. work of, of Power to the Profession brought together colleagues from many different organizations, 15 organizations were in leadership roles. And those included organizations working on behalf of principals and uh, special educators and early childhood educators and social workers and just many organizations that have a vested interest in the quality of early childhood educators came together and came together in a cycle of decision making to think about a number of different things. And one is, what is it that is common to all of the fields that work to support young children? And they also wanted to think about what might logical pathways look like. And having made decisions about things like that, one of the things that it has enabled is a process through which a set of standards and competencies for early childhood educators has evolved that can be used to build both higher education programs and also ongoing professional development. So for example, if a priority, let's say for um, trauma responsive practices is something that students learn some about as part of their pre-service preparation, it would just be so nice and under the system it's possible that as part of ongoing professional development, they would strengthen that knowledge and add new resources and new methods and new strategies so that in the areas that really matter, like engaging families, collaborating with families who are very different or individualizing learning, there's so little time in the pre-service program and so little opportunity to practice that this vision of a path that would run consistently through a career is a very exciting shift. And I think the unifying framework that came from Power to the Profession really lays that out. And so that's one aspect that no matter whether um, individuals who work with children and families have had the most basic course or they have a CDA or they have an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, it, 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 for the first time, really gives us a vision of continuity and consistent emphasis on things that really matter. The other thing about it that has been extraordinary is how much closer it's brought components of our very diverse and complex field. So I think, for example, about my colleague, Eva Horn, who teaches at the University of Kansas. 
teaches in a blended program where her students really are learning about both early childhood education and early childhood special education. And I look at how, as a result of the thoughtful work that's been going on, one of the things that her students have as a basic text is developmentally appropriate practices from um, NAEYC and also the recommended practices from DEC. And it gives this opportunity for the first time in our fields to look at the cohesion and to look at where you start with a general and basic and thoughtful understanding of child development and then have opportunities to apply it in more and more complex and sophisticated ways. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I'm so glad that you brought up that developmentally appropriate practice document um, because I think that's a lovely segue for us to talk a little bit more about the newest version of that document. I remember early in my career when I first saw the very first DAP document and book, I that was that was really transformative for me as a professional. Um, it was so long ago now, um, but I things are different. Um, a lot has changed, and there's been many iterations of that document since that time. And I just love what NAEYC has been producing in all of their foundational documents um, in these last few years. And I'm so excited about the DAP document. Can you just tell our listeners what makes this this edition special? What's special about this version? And what, what do you love about it? I could probably talk about this for a long time because <laughs> it's something that I now feel as though I have spent a good deal of time with. One thing that to me is tremendously uh, useful is even the, the organization. So um, as Nikki's saying, there is both a new fourth edition position statement, the National Association for the Education of Young Children has a position statement on developmentally appropriate practice. And one of the things that they did in revising and updating the third edition is they organized the content to mirror the content of the professional standards and competencies for early childhood educators. So what that means is in the standards and competencies, there's a chunk on um, partnerships with families and community connections. Similarly, in DAP, there is a section specifically devoted to it. They're called, they're called standards in the standards and competencies. They're called guidelines in DAP. But what it means is that there is both basic information about that which is foundational. And then in the companion, in the DAP book and position statement, it really takes it to a level that is beautifully um, integrated. So for example, one of the things that the new position statement thoroughly embraces throughout the, the position is, the idea that there are always three core considerations we need to be thinking about as we think about young children. And one of them is, what is it that we know about child development and how might that apply to this child? That's what they refer to as commonality. And it's things like, what might we expect a two-year-old to know and be able to do? And then the second consideration is to really think about uh, the context of the child, which may have to do with family, may have to do with community, may have to do with like life circumstances. 
And then the third consideration is who is that child as an individual learner, which ranges from what are the things that interest and intrigue this child to what are the things that are really hard for this child to do? And how do we put those things together? And then here's where just the, the, the divine challenge of DAP comes, if you will. Not only do we need to think of those three things, but we also need to think about how to move towards supporting each and every child in ways that are playful, are fun-loving, are, are just that make learning delightful. But the, the emphasis in the new position statement on playful, engaged learning is stronger than it's ever been. It's just beautifully, beautifully written. Yeah, I love that too. And and the number of times it says joyful or the word joy yeah. in this yeah. document that did not exist before. And that that's really meaningful for me that we're talking about that playful, joyful learning. And that should be the expectation uh, for what all children have the opportunity to experience. Um, I, I just love it. I love it. Right. But in, in, in achieving that expectation, we also are thinking that this is a child who's not just turned two, but two and a half, and who um, has cochlear implants because she was born with a profound hearing loss. And there are two languages in her home. So all of those factors need to be, I guess, uh, braided into cohesive decision-making. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And uh, the other thing that really stands out to me in those core considerations is that context is a part of each of the three mm-hmm. uh, and and you know you spent a, so much of your time um, talking about serving children and families of diverse cultures languages abilities circumstances um, and you you can't escape that on any page of this new DAP position statement it, um, can you just talk to our listeners a little bit more about what all that means what are the goals here? what children are we talking about and what is our obligation to children from all those different diverse experiences? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think that some of that is found in DAP. I think other components are um, maybe found in another new-ish resource from NAEYC, which is an equity position. The Division for Early Childhood and other organizations have also um, endorsed and embraced this vision of supporting each and every child. And I think it really unpacks the idea that until all means all, that we really need to think about each child and who they are as a learner. Mm-hmm. And I, I think so many of us know that from personal experience, but it's it's not really been as forceful a component of for the preparation of teachers. So we know this logically from our families where for those of us who have siblings, we know who was great at sports and who was, that this would be me, the last person on the block to roller skate. And we know who um, really found reading to be a snap, for whom was reading a struggle, who was a great speller and who couldn't spell to save their lives. And I think, you know, for each of us, we have known and watched what our siblings excelled at and what we excelled at and just seeing how individual learning is. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think that has applied as rigorously to how we then have prepared educators 
to support each and every child. We just haven't made that translation. And instead, what we've had is different branches of our field. So we had uh, NAEYC, which is a national organization of early childhood educators, and DEC, which is a national organization of early childhood special educators. And part of what has really shifted is um, a, a, an appreciation of that which is foundational to all of that. And the other thing that has, has shifted is, and I, I'm thinking particularly about a resource that I remember sharing with you that the September 2021 issue of Young Exceptional Children is a really interesting issue devoted to the whole idea of reconceptualizing special education. Because I, I think we've expected that there was early childhood education, early childhood special education, and what this new way of thinking about how we conceptualize ability and ability differences means that we need to be responsive to all social identity. So it's not enough to say, I'm supporting this child because this child has a label of Down syndrome or of cerebral palsy. This is also a child from the, with a family, with living in a community who may have had more or less difficulty in their life circumstances, who may have just a different race, who may have different languages, that our multiple identities have been embraced by both organizations in ways that really allow us to develop and use some new materials and to, to more easily than ever draw resources from both fields to support each child. So I think so much of this is about appreciating individual differences of many, many kinds. Also appreciating who each of us is and what we bring to the, the equation. I think so many of our students have not had lots of different life experiences with people from different races, different languages, different cultures. So I think part of our commitment as those who are preparing future teachers and also those who are current teachers is to really provide them with as many insights and resources as possible. So they are absolutely able to individualize and to form relationships with families that are responsive. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking as you're talking about um, that there's been a split in, in early childhood in my whole career. And I've, I've, uh, worked as an early childhood special educator, and that's the program that I direct right now at the University of Wyoming. Um, but I've definitely seen uh, the other side of things from the general education side, and there seems to be a hierarchy. That there's certainly a hierarchy in pay and compensation mm -hmm. um, if you're trained um, from that special education side of things. You make a lot more money in early childhood. You're viewed as the quote expert, um, and there tends to be a certain level of respect that comes with that. Um, and I, I've felt and seen a real gap between um, what those uh, educators that have that set of training and experiences know and value, and then those that um, are have don't have the special education training, but have the fundamental knowledge about children, all children and families, and that those, those really haven't crossed over. So I'm very, very excited to hear you saying all of this because yeah. it's just so needed. Um, we all need this. It's kind of like my, my vision is that we have one 
professional toy box that we can open and yeah. that everyone has access to. So I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Um, several years ago, some really talented colleagues created a resource called Kara's Kit. And Kara's Kit is this wonderful resource for helping any educator think about how to make things easier for children so that they're successful. And they think along this continuum where what's the smallest thing I could change to help a child succeed to what's the most help I could provide? Well, it turns out that this tool where you think about how might I change the directions? How might I change the materials? How might I change the environment? So this is a tool that came from colleagues who are in early childhood special education. And right now I'm working with a number of early childhood faculty members whose students are writing better and implementing better lesson plans than they ever have. Because in the past, when they've tried to say to their students, how would you modify this? How would you adapt this? That concept is huge. Uh -huh. And so students this semester in one of the programs that I'm working with have been using Kara's kit to plan their activities with children and then also to reflect on how that activity went. So they're, they're looking at the activity and saying, okay, thinking about the children, I know that, you know, I know this one really likes dinosaurs and this one is very shy. So thinking about the children, how can you engage them in the learning with the materials, with the interactions, with sequence and so they're using they they literally have deconstructed the components and then after they finish the activity and are in a position to reflect it also gives them a tool for saying you know next time if i were to do this again and i wanted to make it a little bit harder how would i change each of these components so it, this is a source i'm easily pleased in this regard it's a source of endless delight for me that what would previously have been thought of as a special ed resource is now in the hands of early childhood educators and helping them to unpack the components of individualizing. That's amazing. So that's called Kara's Kit. Is it, how can someone get their hands on that? I definitely want to get my hands on that. <laughs> Kara's um, Kit is something that you need to purchase. I believe it's about okay. $25, but the handout has information. Okay. It's also free. The state of Pennsylvania created a, um, a series of, I think, two modules that talk about the whole continuum of learning and how to really make things, help children be successful through adaptations and individualizing. So uh, the handout has both access to that professional development and access to Kira's kit as well. It's a toddler version also, but it's great. this is what is intriguing me right now, how to mm -hmm. provide the crossover. Yeah, I love that. And that also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what, what it, I was also going to tell you that it, NAEYC has done a lot and is to really be commended for fostering this kind of thinking because mm -hmm. in the past several years, every time they have created a new uh, position statement or resource that's part of this evolving suite of ideas under power to the profession, instead of just issuing the statement in English and Spanish, what they've done instead is to create what I call a landing pad. There's actually a website. So if you want, for example, to take a look at the new position on developmentally appropriate practice, 
you can go to, and again, this is also in the hand, you can go to mm -hmm. the website and not only will you find the resources there, but you'll also find things broken out into components. So for example, there are, there's an entire section for faculty that has a, ideas about how to incorporate a developmentally appropriate practice perspective into college coursework. Mm -hmm. And then for each of the, the, the components of DAP, there's what um, we call a chart. And I'm, I'm saying we because I got to create these with two incredibly talented colleagues, Eva Horn and Floriana Thompson. Uh -huh. So each of the charts has just wonderful resources. It has vignettes that you can use to help students or students learn about um, children and families with different characteristics. It has um, questions and prompts for reflection. It has activities, it has assignments, has additional resources. So truly NAUSE has gone in my estimation from just, a, just providing a URL that says, here's the new position statement mm -hmm. to really providing a, a service to the field. There's an equally robust set of resources for early childhood educators. And right now they're in the process of planning a whole sequence of professional development to really make sure that whether you read the position statement or actually invest in the book, that there are lots and lots of supports for using the new ideas and the new content. That's amazing. And just to point our listeners in the right direction, um, the handout that Camille's talking about will uh, be landing at the wyecplc.org website. So when you click, when you go to this podcast on that website, um, there'll be a link there. And also just let me say that if you're interested in some of these NAUIC resources and want a little bit of extra help finding those and accessing those, your professional learning facilitator in your region is a great person to get a hold of and she'll be able to help you find the resources that you're looking for as well. So um, they're there and we'll help you find them. Super. Great. Um, Camille, I've just been uh, thinking a little bit more about your career and your experiences you've had at the policy level and at the state level and the higher ed level um, and your perspective of pulling all of this together. I want to I want to bring it down to the the classroom level just really quickly and just have you share a little bit of your wisdom uh, with our listeners. So. Um, if you think about a, a new early childhood educator who may have not had the opportunity to go to college, um, but they, they know that they're where they want to be with a group of kids in a classroom, in a space, or in a home, family home, child care program, or something else, and um, you, they were to ask you for one piece of advice about the most important thing for them to be focusing on in their work with kids and families, what would you say to them? I think that's a particularly difficult question right now because I think one of the things that we're hearing every day is that our whole early childhood system is broken. Yeah. And I think as we look at issues of compensation, that we, as we look at all of the vacancies and we look at a, a history of a, a system that has undervalued people providing, I, I think the most important um, work there is, uh, as, a, as a country, we have just some incredibly big challenges that I hope we'll have some support in, in addressing soon. Yeah. 
I think the, the thing that to me is would be most important for someone who's new is to find someone who can give you sage advice, who has been in the field for longer than you and just can say, this first year is going to be harder than any other year that you teach. Yeah. Who, whose wisdom will not come in the form of read this article. Um, although that certainly could be one form, but I think can come more in the form of just practical magic for, for daily challenges. So the fact is that there is so much to learn to be truly excellent in this field. And often the rewards um, certainly aren't financial. So having someone who can remind you, new educator of the difference that you make. And just once you have one of those stories in your um, repertoire, it's, it's just the, the first building block in really learning about a career that's amazing and unlike any other. But right now there are some things that are hopefully just problem that are problematic and that hopefully will get better. That's, yeah. it's, it's a hard time to answer that question because it, it is, it's so challenging. I think the other thing too, that makes it particularly challenging for new early childhood educators right now is if they're coming out of higher ed programs, they have just experienced uh, a long period of non-normal um, learning. Mm -hmm. And so there was recently a, a set of ideas put forward by four top authorities on family engagement. And the reason that they decided to share ideas, and these are ideas particularly for higher ed programs, is they were calling around and discovering that there were some students who actually were graduating from an early childhood education program, never having had a conversation with a family member because there haven't been families to interact with. Yeah. And so I, I think we're, we're starting to do some really clever things. States can do things that will make a huge difference. In, in Pennsylvania, they have put out a, 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 an APB for families and um, drawn them in, provided professional development, and are matching them with um, faculty so that students have family members to interview, to learn from, to, um, to Zoom with. And mm -hmm. so I think we're seeing some incredibly clever things, but there is so much more to do. And I, I, I wish I could sound more, more hopeful at this point. It's a time for leadership at a time when the leaders are so tired because I think a, a lot of ingenuity has gone into keeping the ship afloat over the last yeah. two years. Yeah, and I love, uh, I really love that answer. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't what I expected. I don't know what I expected to hear, but um, I think the core of both, both pieces of your answer are relationships. What we need right now is supportive relationships, even relationships with families. Students need to have relationships, work on relationships with actual families. Uh, but I love that piece um, that you started us off with thinking about what, what we need is each other and support. And um, I did some work uh, for my master's uh, where I found that um, 
one of the common themes, this isn't news to anyone from early childhood educators in Wyoming is just isolation. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a very large state and, um, mm -hmm. and isolation is a really huge challenge for us. I think everywhere in the field, everywhere in the country, but that just feeling so alone in what we're doing and such a stressful job and such an important job. We need each other. We need to find people to mentor and coach us. Uh, we need to connect each other. And, and I can't resist giving a shout out to our listeners that that is one of the reasons why the Wyoming Early Childhood Professional Learning Collaborative exists. It's one of our primary goals is to decrease your isolation. And if you're having feelings like that and you want to connect, um, we have resources for you and we're here to try to connect you with other educators in your region, in your area and in the state. So um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thanks, Camille. Thank you. Nikki, the other thing that occurred to me is that um, some listeners may be interested in the, the work that we're doing with higher ed programs in, in Wyoming. So yeah. maybe one of the things that we should do is think about uh, just a one pager that, that could summarize that. So if anybody's interested, they could find that out and get more information. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yes. So we'll connect. Uh, definitely go to our website and to the page for this podcast, and we'll have a lot of information for you there. Um, so Camille, uh, as we get ready to wrap this up, there are a couple of other things that I wanted to ask you. Um, we've shared what some of your worries are, I think, that, that just came out, you know, about what's happening in our field right now. What brings you the most hope right now? I, I have to say the momentum that has been achieved by the power to the profession. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. In one of the states I work with is Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, based on um, that work, there is now a common set of priorities that connect everything related to early childhood. So they have adopted the standards and competencies at, for early childhood educators. They added an additional standard because states have to also make them their own. But the idea that both the work that I'm doing with colleges and universities in Pennsylvania, that that is going to be able to connect to the work that's going on in other venues. So I'm thinking, for example, when students in early childhood programs who are um, participating in colleges and universities go to uh, an AEYC conference. One of the things that may happen is that their instructors could connect them to additional information on a topic that was part of a, of a course so they could continue to learn about a topic. I, I see just thoughtful connections in what has been a, a very disjointed field. Mm -hmm. I, years ago, I had the opportunity to to visit Sweden and, and I asked what their guiding plan for early childhood was. And they handed me a 20 page document, the Lara plan. And I remember thinking, but it, 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 it's so little. And there was both a commitment to a set, a core set of ideas and principles and also support in the form of, um, gener of not, not generous, but, but fair salaries mm -hmm. and ongoing professional development and mentoring, the, there was support for the system. So there was both the vision and then also the resources to achieve implementation and ongoing evaluation of that system. And that just struck me as interesting when I was asked by Swedish educators 
about our national plan. I, it took a few minutes to explain that not only does it vary from state to state, but it may also vary from region to region and from city to city. And it started, it, it was thoroughly confusing. I mean, there are you know, 50 odd um, sets of teacher licensure rules in your yeah. country. Yes, that, it, that's true. And this, the, my message is not one that we need everything to be the same. I, I, I hope that instead what you've heard is how very important it is to be able to individualize. But mm -hmm. how can we also find that common grounding in quality and a set of, of um, evidence-based practices that support each and every child and family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, our children deserve it and our early childhood educators deserve it. And it's time. I agree. I really feel like this is a, this is a very difficult time to be in this field. And it's also the best yeah. right now because I feel like we have people's attention and the, the potential to really move things forward. It seems better now than any other time in my career, uh, especially in the state of Wyoming too, listeners. If you, if you haven't had a chance to hear about the work that's happening in our state, there's going to be some podcast interviews coming up about that. And we'll have some links on our website to some of those exciting things that have been, been part of our conversations here in Wyoming um, that have brought Camille to us. Um, so Camille, I, I just thank you so much for being here with us. I, I do have a final, a final question for you. Um, this is a podcast about professional learning. And so I'm really curious. Um, some of our listeners may think, you know, Camille, she's got this all figured out. She's an expert. She's been doing this for a long time. She knows what she's doing. She doesn't have any more learning to do. Um, I would love for you to just tell us something that you've learned recently. It can be anything. I think what I've learned recently is how much my life is enriched by travel. It is the, of all, I, I, I think I work pretty hard, but I work pretty hard so I can travel. Mm -hmm. And what that has allowed me to connect to is just amazing people in very different parts of the world mm -hmm. where it, just the underlying idea is, um, there is charm everywhere if you know how to look for it. And uh -huh. so I, I have felt this discovery keenly during this time when travel has not been possible. Yeah. I, I just, I, I feel like I, there, I, I want my passport in my hand again. So I really <laughs> reconnect with the world. I love that. I love it. I do have one final question for you uh, that's been on my mind since we've been talking. Uh, I, can't, I just can't let you go. I'm sorry. Um, but I've been thinking about um, your career and the kind of legacy that you're leaving for our field, which is just, it's really significant. Um, it, I don't know if you've had opportunities, if you've spent much time thinking about your legacy, um, but what is it that you would most want to be remembered for having contributed to our field? Mm. All of your work that you've done. Yeah, I think if there's a single area that is both a point of pride and an ongoing source of satisfaction, it's resources. And for as I think this, believe it or not, goes back to working my way through college as a librarian. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know everything, but I knew where to find things. Mm -hmm. And something that I've been really committed to in this field is that regardless of what fiscal resources people had, I want them to be able to access 
free, high quality, readily available things to support their work. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I guess volunteer work has taken the form of two different national listservs that provide free resources. Baby Talk is birth to 36 month resources. Oh, great. Sharing free things that help people do their work more effectively um, at no cost. Yeah, I love it. And it's wonderful to hear you say that because that is what it's like, everyone, listeners, to spend any time with Camille. You <laughs> you bring up one thing and she will share 10 resources that are incredible that you never knew of before. Uh, so I've been benefiting from that, learning from you uh, this fall. It's been incredible. So will you share uh, share the listserv again and any other? You said you have two listservs. What, what are those? So the, the second listserv is called Natural Resources. And Natural Resources is on a different topic Okay. Each month. It just so happens that the November topic is uh, resources related to implementing developmentally appropriate practices. So amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll share information about both of those and okay. we'll just, I'll add that to the handout. I, I, it's not on it now, but it will be by the time. That's fantastic. Baby talk and natural resources. If they Google that, people will be able to find those resources there, do you think? Great. Absolutely. Just wait and get the handout. That'll make it Good. a lot we'll easier. Look at the hand handout. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go to our website and you'll be able to find that. Um, well, thank you so much, Camille. Uh, thank thanks you. for a wonderful conversation today. We could keep going forever, but I know your time is precious. So um, I just want to thank you again for being here. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Voices from the Village today. This podcast is funded by the Federal Preschool Development Grant. It's been created at the University of Wyoming Early Childhood Outreach Network, which I direct. I'm your host, Nikki Baldwin, and I want to give special thanks today to uh, my producer, Bryce Tugwell. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nikki.